1: Defend and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable.
0: Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can choose from a variety of free ebooks. But now for today's show. On Friday, the 19th of May, the evangelist, apologist and author Tim Keller died following a decline in his health after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2020. Christians around the world took to social media to express their gratitude for Tim and the impact of his work on their faith and ministries. I'm joined today by Colin Hansen, Editor-in-Chief of the Gospel Coalition and Executive Director of the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. Colin recently wrote a book entitled Timothy Keller, his spiritual and intellectual formation. Now, Colin, tributes have rightly been streaming in for Tim Keller, but as someone who knew him personally, what is your response to Tim's stare?
1: Oh, it's hard. Um, I think that the part that just sticks with me is the, the finality of it, the, the emails I won't receive, the, the answers he won't be able to give, the the text messages that um I won't have and then the the long phone conversations about ministry and everything else. It just feels like we've lost you know, the the roof on our house and we're exposed in in some ways. It's what it feels like. And so more than anything else, I just uh just missed that friendship, missed that advice, miss that godly presence and um our loss is, uh, our loss is his gain. Uh, now seeing Jesus face to face.
0: And when did you first meet Tim Keller? It
1: may have been 2007. I was working for Christianity today magazine at the time and the gospel coalition was just having their first national event. And I heard an am- amazing message. It was just called gospel centered ministry. Uh, you can find it pretty easily online. Um, The reason people will remember it is because it was one of the most prominent places. Well, it was the most prominent place that Tim ran through the Old Testament showing how Jesus is the true and better fulfillment in God's eternal redemptive plan of salvation. So met him there um, in the years subsequent. We began editing books together. I began working with him at the Gospel Coalition and uh, partnered with him on a number of other major projects, such as the New City Catechism. And, uh, and ultimately in this in this um, book that really came out of his pancreatic cancer diagnosis, as we realized that the time was short.
0: I mean, you definitely touched on some of this already, but what are some of the lasting memories that you've got of Tim Keller?
1: Oh my, um, you know, what, what immediately comes to mind is at all of our different TGC council meetings, the way he would stand in the back at the candy table and just sort of pick m&ms and nuts and things like that and just and just ponder and tim was the kind of person in a room full of insightful people like john piper and don carson and sandy wilson and people like that we all paid a special attention when tim would give a reflection and uh, but he kept going through those days just by you know just by picking at that candy table i think about that i'll i'll miss him um I'll miss him at those meetings uh, for sure.
0: And I suppose this is going to be really hard for you to do because over the years, he must have shared so much advice and, and thoughts about ministry, about the Christian walk. But is there anything in particular that that has seemed really significant for your life? Any advice or, or any thinking that, that was particularly significant for you?
1: What What stands out to me about Tim's advice is that he was... He's very he was very savvy. Um, he understood institutional dynamics, um even sometimes political dynamics, and he was not um not naive. There's a difference between being um being naive and being wise and gentle. And sometimes they can seem to conflate, but he was, wise while also being gentle he was politically aware without being any kind of bully without manipulating other people without speaking cross words uh, to other people and that's that's what sticks out to me that you can you can be aware of what's happening around you but not succumb to the worst temptations not be subsumed by your circumstances you'll hear some people today talk about being a non-anxious presence and tim i think embodied that as much as anybody i've seen you could see that he even though he's a a sensitive person in some ways and he did care a lot about what people thought about him uh, he just stayed that kind of kept that even keel he just didn't get too high didn't get too low and um That's something that I I think maybe was a little more natural in his personality than in mine, uh, but it's still something that I would aspire to.
0: So let's turn to your book, Colin, um, your book, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. You asked a question in your preface, which I'm going to sort of chuck back at you. You said, so why write about someone so uninterested in publicity? So I guess, you know, that's kind of the obvious question. Why did you want to write this book?
1: Yeah, and why and why put his face and his name on the cover <laughs> and in the yeah. title as well? Um, because when you talk to Tim, you're you're he would talk about other people. Um, so in writing about Tim Keller, and this is so fun to think about, he and C.S. Lewis uh, together right now, and Jonathan Edwards. He, that's what he wanted to talk about. He wanted to talk about those folks. He wanted to talk about mid-century British evangelicalism and his amazing fondness for the ministries of Martin Lloyd Jones and J.I. Packer and John Stott and and how that was formative for him as opposed to American evangelicalism. That that's what he wanted to, to do. And a lot of people may not have been able to piece together his disparate influences. They they might have seen, wow, okay, so Tim learned this and this and this, but they might not have realized that you could multiply that by 5 or by or by 50 so i wanted to bring that comprehensively together in in one catalog of all of those different influences not only in direct conversation with him which was the key to be able to do while he was living but also in its archives all of his sermons all of his uh, writings especially his books that are all they're all out there but the main thing with him is he just When you talk to him, he deflected toward Jesus and toward these other places that he'd learned. And that's why we took that particular approach. And I'm glad we got to do it before we lost him.
0: And you mentioned there C.S. Lewis, and we're going to be talking specifically about C.S. Lewis (laughs) and the impact that that had on um Tim Keller in a, in another podcast in the CS Lewis podcast um, but why was Tim Keller such an influential figure do you think why why was it important and imperative that you wrote this book what well, you know why do you think he sort of spread to the masses it, you know it wasn't just people within his own denon- denomination and his church who were influenced by him was it
1: no not at all and and not in the United States um at all either Um, He spent a lot of time in the UK. I'm not sure how much, if people know how much time he spent there, not only was it, I think probably his favorite place to vacation and to visit, but also it was where he kind of discerned in 1989 that he would would need to be going to New York City to launch Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Anyway, I I think it's because I, I did a study years ago. Uh, in a book called Blind Spots, and I looked at the ministry of Jesus and how Jesus is courageous and compassionate and commissioned. He brings these things together. But many leaders today only grab one aspect or another from, from from that ministry of Jesus. But when you look at Tim, he had courage to preach the gospel even in difficult places and defend the faith. He had compassion as the expert in Reformed Diaconate Mercy Ministries almost single-handedly helped to inspire a transformation of that um, movement, especially within his denomination, starting things like Hope for New York. But then also he was deeply committed to the Great Commission, not only the Great Commandment, but the Great Commission as well, And, and starting church planting, well, not only starting Redeemer Presbyterian Church and churches all throughout New York City, but also around the world through city to city, that is that's rare that you see somebody who encompasses all of those dynamics and you might also look at him from the perspective of the of the normative and the the situation I mean he was able to just bridge when you read him you thought oh he's really good with biblical theology but he also understands our situation but he also preaches to my heart that is a rare combination you just don't see that very often that's what how God gifted him. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable.
0: Well, let's take a look at some of the things that you unpack in your book. Obviously, you know, if you want to know more, do go and get a copy of the book because it's incredibly helpful. But what was Tim Keller's childhood like, if we go back to the very beginning?
1: Yeah, so this was one of the shorter chapters of my book, but certainly foundational and important. And I think almost entirely new. As far as I know, in that information, the main thing that stood out in Tim's childhood was his mother, and uh, Italian Catholic by background. And the real big help here came from Tim's sister. Um, She is now the only living family member, and she was a middle child. And Tim didn't talk much about his mother, but his sister did. And his childhood was kind of a typical 1950s, early 60s American middle class uh, childhood, but. The dominant mother figure that really shaped him. He he was often in conflict with her. He, she had very high standards for him as a very precocious a child. Um, and in many ways, he reacted to that. And so when Tim writes what is effectively his autobiography, The Prodigal God, he talks about the dynamic with the two brothers, the brother who wants to run away from home, the brother who wants to Pre, you know, be the good upstanding child at home. Tim was actually both. And you can see that in relation to his mother. He was both running away from her demands of what he saw to be a, a legalistic version of Christianity. but at the same time, he wanted to be the the righteous elder brother of the family. So it's very formative of understanding his his perspective, his perspective on grace.
0: And you speak a bit as well about how that sort of informed his ministry. And there's a quote here from Sharon, his sister, who says, one of the reasons why I think he does so well with talking to people is the result of how he had to handle our mother. I mean, would you say just a little bit about that? Because that's clearly <laughs> has an impact on his evangelism, on his apologetics.
1: Yeah, he was an arguer. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> he uh, And there was a, a funny note there where uh, Tim's, Uh, father had been a conscientious objector in World War II. In the United States, that was very rare. His mother did not allow him to be able to fight. And so then Tim's mother, she picks up on this and doesn't allow her boys to fight in the neighborhood either. Tim was very large. So and personality-wise, not really well-suited, but he was very large, could have fought. And I think one of the things that Sharon observed there was how Tim had to argue himself out of all these different situations. <laughs> and he, had to, he had to fight, you know, fight through those different things using his words. And so it's funny, all the things that God does to prepare us for ministry that we don't necessarily anticipate.
0: And there are various points on his journey where sort of faith became real to him and you know, his sort of Christian faith was ignited. But was there a particular point when he would definitively say that was where he became a Christian?
1: Yeah, Tim and I argued about this a little <laughs> bit. Uh, it's it's actually re- it's only appropriate given his love for C.S. Lewis that we can't be completely sure uh, when Tim Keller was converted. Uh, Tim would say that it was in the early months of 1970. I actually have a definitive date in the book because his his best friend and best man at his wedding, Bruce Henderson, it was his 21st birthday. That's what he recalls um, at that time, and so he remembers the it was sort of Tim showing up at the foot of his bed, almost a physically transformed in his spiritual conversion. So there was a very specific time, even though some of the very framework of the gospel of sin and salvation had been set in his Lutheran mainline church and some of his confirmation classes earlier. But certainly you got that winter, especially spring 1970. That's, um, that's a definitive t- change in his life, no doubt about it.
0: And one of the really key elements of that was the student ministry into varsity, wasn't it? So why why did that prove so important for Tim?
1: Another connection back to British evangelicalism, of course. Um, at the time, American evangelicalism was not very um, outstanding in terms of its intellectual development at a much more pietistic stream. For a very learned young student like Tim Keller, it was important to be exposed to thoughtful Christianity he got there through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He was in his element behind a book table. Uh, Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis was one of the first um, Christian books that he read. It was handed to him by friends in InterVarsity, and these were people who allowed him to sit there and argue with him. His friend, Bruce Henderson, said that he was afraid in his hallway that Tim was going to smash one of the walls with these big arms, and you know, just sort of would argue with things and be very demonstrative. And university was a community where he could be safely included and ask his questions Mm -hmm. without being pressured to have to convert immediately on the spot. So there were a lot of things that that Tim had to work through in his life and in his thought at the time. And university gave him the space to do that and ultimately introduced him to Jesus. That's also where he met Ed Clowney, first president of Westminster Seminary and a Really, the the one true personal mentor in Tim's life,
0: and I suppose that place of asking questions and answering them, and it being a safe space and discussing ideas was something that he really took to heart in his ministry later on, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely. And so there's where you get connected to Francis Schaeffer and Labrie. Tim was very much inspired by Labrie and Francis Schaeffer, not so much directly, but through an intermediary, and that was R.C. Sproul and the Lagunear Valley Study Center. There was a specific time that uh, of each week where R.C. Sproul would host what was called a Gab Fest. You could just ask him any question you could think of, and he would try to answer, and R.C. was especially gifted at that. R.C. Sproul conducted the wedding for Tim and Kathy Keller um, years later. But um, Tim took that to heart, and he carried it all the way through. In fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, I was in New York City. Last time I was able to talk with with Tim, and I worshipped with Michael Keller, his son at Redeemer Lincoln Square, and Michael did a question and answer session after the service. Well, that was something that Tim had done initially um, at uh, at Redeemer, and had done on Sunday nights, going all the way back to his first pastorate in Hopewell, Virginia, where Michael was born. So, yeah, that whole you know, this is a place where doubters are welcome to answer their questions. That was absolutely core to Tim Keller's ministry.
0: And you say in the book that um, R.C. Sproul gave Keller a vision for how to speak per- persuasively to non-Christians with intelligent command of the issues. I mean, was part of that, that gab fest, the kind of Q&A response, the giving them, um, you know, the kind of the authority to to ask those questions, the permission to raise those doubts and questions?
1: Yeah, one of my favorite stories comes from Hopewell, Virginia. And, and keep in mind, he's preaching One sermon on Sunday morning, he's preaching another separate sermon for an evening service, and then he invites uh, anybody who wants to come to his house afterward and ask them questions for as long as they want. One of the observations I got from one of their friends, Lori Howell, she said, if you didn't come with questions, that was okay. Tim had a list of about 100 already prepared that you could ask. (laughs) We're not talking about easy questions here. We're talking about hard ones there, and sometimes when you're the person who fields so many of those questions, you know, the good ones to prompt for other people. Mm. Like, "Mm, that's an interesting question. But have you thought about this? This one's even better. And so, yeah, that was just part of Tim's makeup. When he gets to New York, he kind of flips the tables a little bit. And instead of, you know, him answering all the questions, he asks the questions. He just talks to, he talks to New Yorkers and says, Hey, what are you thinking? What are your questions? And then he would go back and study them. So that was really formative in that ministry transition to New York.
0: When and why did Tim Keller start engaging in evangelism? I suppose he, he came to faith through InterVarsity. Was it through InterVarsity that he started doing evangelism or, or were there other outlets for that?
1: Yeah, I had a um, an interesting question uh, some time ago. Somebody asked me why I didn't talk about his call to ministry. And it occurred to me that I never thought about a time when Tim was not engaged in ministry after he became a Christian in 1970. So yeah, I think evangelism was simply what he thought every Christian should be doing because it's what these Christians had done for him. And so almost immediately after he becomes a Christian, it's the height of the Vietnam protest movement in the United States. And Tim's out there with this claim about the about the resurrection of Jesus Christ being intellectually credible, credible but also existentially satisfying. He's out there engaging, he's at the university book table, he's he's answering questions. It just it just seemed to be the natural outgrowth of the fact that he had so many questions himself before he became a Christian and was helped in those. He turned right around and he was started doing direct evangelism. In fact, before his junior year, Um, of of college, he and a friend of his wrote every single incoming college student to invite them to come to InterVarsity, and then followed up with anybody who showed any interest there. So he was very much thinking about discipleship and evangelism from the very beginning, and at the time was the Jesus movement. It was a pretty spectacular revival, especially around the United States, and uh, he was very much a product of that and also a perpetuator of it.
0: Well, one of the people, you've spoken quite a lot about his um, his love for England and English things, and he obviously did a fair bit of mission and things like that um, in, in England. And one of the British writers who really influenced um, Tim Keller was John Stott. Would you say a little bit about how he came into contact with John Stott and what it was in particular that he found sort of really impacted his writing work?
1: That is a good question. I don't think I have the answer to how they came into contact. What I found with Tim about John Stott was um kind of a mutual relationship. Here's what I mean. Um, when when it when the question came up for John Stott's legacy ministry for Langham Partners, when they were looking for somebody to memorialize John Stott in the United States, they naturally thought of Tim Keller. And when Tim Keller gave that memorial, when he eulogized John Stott, he gave a lot of explanations that really could have been applied to Tim. And so it's pretty clear that from both sides, there was a strong connection. They did not agree on everything. There was some some significant differences between them in terms of their global reach, their personality, their theological convictions, their attitude toward others, their their cosmopolitan sensibilities in major cities, London and New York, um, I think just made them, Tim, in many ways, a natural successor to John Stott. And I think just as we continue to read John Stott's books today and his, his insights on scripture remain so penetrating not only to the heart, but also to the mind. I think that's the same way we're going to be looking at Tim Keller's works.
0: Well, that seems like a great way to end this podcast, looking at someone who is a brilliant expositional expositional preacher, um, but also an evangelist, which clearly could also be said oh, of hmm. Tim Keller. But don't go anywhere because we will be hearing more from you, Colin, but thank you so much for today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at uk, or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for a free ebook. Thank you for listening and see you next time.
1: You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources, and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community.